Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for May 5th, 2020. We're getting it up there in months. My name's mm-hmm. Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, as always, we are going to talk about things that are going on in our world. Some lofty ideas that we're going to try to bring down and uh, discuss them in a way that hopefully will be accessible to all, or at least to most. But uh, whatever we do, our promise to you is that we are going to try, emphasis on try, to keep all of our discussions in good faith, and, as always, keep them adequately informed. So so what you're saying is we picked the best, juiciest takes from the top of the take tree that we are able to reach from our ivory tower. What I'm saying is we uh, we are walking by the take tree and we shook it for like three seconds. We gathered up whatever was on the ground and then uh, we we washed it off and served it up to you. Okay, this, so we, uh, so we took package. what was ripe. <laughs> yeah, ripe Ready to or fall rancid. Off the tree. Yeah, rancid. The, you know the squirrel the squirrel bit through the the stem of the take and and now it's ours. You heard it here first, folks. Adequately informed, home of the rancid takes. <laughs> um, but we are hoping to, you know, discuss things in good faith, not take them at their bad faith uh, angles. We are not on the ivory tower. We had to reach up for these takes, not reach down. And um, yeah, just realize we're human and we're not infallible and this week we are hoping to stay as far away from current coronavirus conversation as we can but i mean it's impossible not to talk about it in some capacity but anyway hey evan hey joe what do you want to talk about that's not directly coronavirus related i want to talk about film and oh. film festivals and the South by Southwest film festival. Here's the Corona disclaimer. Uh, the South by Southwest film festival takes place annually in Austin, Texas, but it was canceled this year due to the coronavirus outbreak and resultant social distancing guidelines. And it's got to really so, be hurting the Austin economy that this festival isn't happening. Oh no, I'm going too far. No, Joe, Joe, keep it, keep it about the film. Keep it but about the What about, the, about the hot, but the taco stand on the corner of where... Another time. There's a time for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, in an effort to preserve some aspect of the festival experience, the people at Amazon Video were able to secure the rights to a selection of the original South by Southwest lineup and put it out there for free for everyone to view. So for the past week, I have been covering the South by Southwest Film Festival on my written publication, Midwestern Perspective, and I would like to share some of those experiences with you all here. Did you bring enough for everyone? Ah, uh, well, that depends. How many people are there? Mm. The day, these days, it's looking like 15. Uh, we'll cut it close. Maybe some people will double up. Okay. All right. I think that's workable. <laughs> so, the South by Southwest Film Festival this year contained a number of 
short films. It was a very shorts-heavy lineup, which makes sense because it's more difficult to secure rights uh, for feature-length films. More people were involved with more negotiations to discuss. But they were able to preserve seven of the features and 29 shorts and three episodic selections, which are basically TV pilots. And so far, I have viewed all of the features and over two-thirds of the shorts lineup. And so I think I've got a pretty good feel for what this festival has looked like this year. A couple of reflections on the nature of an online film festival. Uh, First, let's start with some pros. The first pro that I can think of for having an all-digital festival is the access has just exploded. I was not going to drive to Austin. I have been to one film festival, and it was a student festival that I was in in Bowling Green. So it's, you know, it's not like even people who love movies get to go to film festivals all the time, especially prestigious ones that are located states away. But by virtue of this being a virtual film festival, I can take in the entire selection from the comfort, safety, and privacy of my own home here in Indianapolis. And so that's what I've been doing, and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Another great aspect of the all-virtual festival is the way that you can control your own lineup. Festivals are organized so that people can see as many films that interest them as possible, but due to a huge selection and screening capabilities, it's not possible that everyone can see everything they want to. Those constraints are essentially removed here. You can view any of the films that have been selected for the online inclusion at any time, in any order, at as fast, as quickly or as slowly as you want. And so that has been a very nice as well. However, there are a couple of drawbacks to having a virtual festival. One is that aspects that are out of the festival's control can impact the viewing experience. For example, two days ago, when I was attempting to go through one of the film selections, I kept running into problems with my internet. And... All right, all right, yeah, we're good now. It'll be interesting to see how you handle this edit, because just as I was discussing connectivity issues we ran into some connectivity issues but basically one of the biggest drawbacks is that uh, festival organizers can't control technical aspects within someone's home a couple days ago when i was trying to view one of the selections my internet was crapping out and so i kept getting error messages the movie kept getting interrupted and that was fairly annoying but all things considered relatively minor. I think the biggest thing is that there is something intrinsic about a festival experience to go somewhere and be surrounded by people who are there for a similar purpose that I've always romanticized and I'm very interested in achieving someday instead of just being on my own couch with my wife and dog walking into the living room at any point. Um, that disrupts the mood just a little bit. No shots fired. Um, but it still has been a very positive experience. And like I said, this is available on Amazon for free. You don't need to have Prime. 
You just need to have a basic Amazon account that you can sign into and you can watch these movies. So there are a couple of movies that I want to recommend. They're available through Wednesday, so get on this. You're running out of time. Uh, the first movie is going to be called Gunpowder Heart. It is a movie from Guatemala. And I'd never seen a Guatemala movie before, so this was very interesting. And it's about... It's about two women who survive and attack and this changes their relationship dynamic as they try to process the trauma moving forward it is extremely cleverly written it goes in unexpected places it is empowering with phenomenal acting and i recommend it the next movie that i want to recommend is a french anthology comedy called selfie and Selfie is a series of interconnected stories that deal with the way that technology both alters human behavior and reveals our fundamental human drives. It's cute, the writing again is, is pretty clever, and I think that it's not, you know, going to win any major awards for comedy, but it was uh, one of the standouts of the festival among the features. I also want to recommend a movie called Daddio. This is a short film written and directed by Casey Wilson, who you may recognize from Saturday Night Live or Happy Endings. And she plays essentially a version of herself, and she recreates a time in her life after her mother died when she and her father had to go through some intense stages of grief, but they handle it very differently. Casey is hilarious, and the movie is tender and poignant, as well as very funny, and that can be viewed in a short bite. Um, quick hits on some other recommendations. Uh, Blocks is a short film about a new mother who begins manifesting her stress by vomiting up whole Legos. Mm. Uh, it's a little bit surreal, a little bit existential, also very funny, very rewarding by the end. Quilt Fever, a documentary about what they call the Academy Awards of Quilting, the biggest quilt show in the nation, located in Paducah, Kentucky every year. The Voice in Your Head is a funny, surreal comedy about a man whose inner doubts have apparently manifested as another man who follows him around berating him and a very weird short documentary called diorama spelled d-i-e orama about a woman who makes miniature recreations of murder scenes so it's very morbid and macabre but pretty interesting the last film that I want to recommend is one of the features, the documentary feature, and this is where I'm going to get you in, Joe. Yeah. This movie is called TFW No GF, and it is a documentary about a specific internet subculture. It oversects a little, it, it overlaps a little bit with incels or you know 4chan boards, uh, shit posting, basically young men who feel increasingly locked out of economic and romantic opportunity and how they find a sense of community online and the sort of the visual representation of this is the the wojack meme which i'm sure you're familiar with 
Hmm. Maybe not by name. Yeah, it's the uh, anyway. I'm sure you'd be aware of it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, everyone can look that up if they're curious. Um, but it is a discussion, and this is this. It really taps into some discussions that Joe and I have had for a long time about masculinity and about digitization of relationships about the line between expression and offensiveness online and i think that the movie can at times be very frustrating but it's ultimately a very insightful look at a controversial subculture yeah there are uh at least a decent gathering of young men online who feel very disaffected um, by society and their ability to perform in any way that they feel as societally valid or societally masculine, an expression of um, their worth in society. So um, I'll definitely have to check that out because... It is. Yeah, I do do recommend. It's a ever present group that has been. It it, it shows up all all the time for like the past five or so years, and um, at least when they've kind of come to the forefront, and yeah, I can I can empathize with them, but um, I also wanted to say. Um, I also kind of want to watch that diorama, uh, documentary because I think I had, uh, heard of those dioramas before, uh, the, you know, just kind of miniatures of murder scenes and they're used for like training to like what happened here. But the, even then the, I, I don't know if this is explained or if this is true, but I mean, I was under the impression that. They're kind of created without any true story behind them. Correct. So they're just kind of a fun mystery to look at and ponder about. Yeah, I think you would like that one. There's no official narrative on what happened in each one. Yeah, Yeah, it's all just from the uh, artist's artist's creation. Oh, yeah. So the the artist who makes them is named Abigail Goldman, and she works in a public defender's office. So she draws inspiration from stories that she hears at work, but the actual scenes themselves are her own invention. And it wouldn't surprise me if you've heard about this. They've become popular nationally as sort of collector's items. You know, she makes them and sells them, or uh, one of the things that she's begun doing is sort of leaving them in public places as sort of almost a geocaching experience for people to stumble on. But she works out of uh, You're the Seattle You're telling me area, I can so. buy this shit? I mean, it's expensive because she's it? the only one making it. But, yeah, I mean, it's a collector's thing. Oh, so. man. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll drop some dough on a, on a cool diorama. Ooh. Yep, so, Abigail uh, Gold. Everyone who's trying to shop for me for Christmas this year and has a big budget, think of me. so yeah i think that there's a wide range of films for almost anyone to enjoy you can check out 
my full recaps on what I've seen on MidwesternPerspective.com. But before I go, I do want to share uh, some overall takeaways about what I think the festival has tried to represent. And there's two parts to it. The first part to it is a focus on diversity and representation. There are a number of women and people of color who have directed films that were selected for inclusion that tell stories from a wide variety of viewpoints. And there are also a lot of queer and LGBT stories that are being represented. And so South by Southwest is really stepping up to make sure that they are being inclusive and actively promoting the films of people who are historically marginalized within cinema. So that is commendable. The other aspect of the festival that I find particularly interesting is that so many of these stories have focused on the way that technology connects us, but the ways that it also keeps us apart and how digital communities and digital spaces modify our experience of intimacy because the the TFW No GF movie is explicitly about that, as is Selfie. There are other shorts. Uh, there's another short, uh, I can't recall the title of it off the top of my head, but the premise is a, a woman tries to surprise her boyfriend with a uh, raunchy video call, but due to some technological slip-ups, she learns that he's not as attracted to her as she would like to believe. And during this time when we are all so pushed away from each other, I'm sorry for going back to Corona, it's, it's real brief, but at a time when we're watching this and we're all so far apart from each other out of necessity, a lot of these films sort of posit that that's that the, the distance is never going to result in adequate human contact. I know a lot of people are talking about the ways that the world will change after coronavirus, but it seems as though nothing is ever going to replace that face-to-face, in-person sense of human contact that we all crave. Yeah. There was um, when the, you know, the Internet started and started to really take off and the social Internet was really starting to get going. There was some promise that, oh, we'll all be able to communicate and uh, we'll all be closer than ever before. And in some ways we're closer, but then it's just kind of not close. Like maybe you share more intimate details of your life, but that doesn't make you closer to people. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic that we live in. Justin Timberlake's character, Sean Parker in The Social Network said, first we live in farms, then we lived in cities. In the future, we'll live on the internet. And more and more, we're finding out the ways in which that is abundantly true and the ways in which that prognostication is woefully inadequate. And I think that uh, sort of inadvertently, these selections of shorts and documentaries and features have come along at a very 
apt time. Yeah. You know, just a stray thought, but I wonder if even like early internet relationships had more kind of intimate, real, like human value because people just formed relationships through the old lens, but online. But now we have ways that we form relationships that are exclusively online oriented. So just a thought. Care to care to get into that a little more? What types of relationships do we form online that are different from what we do normally? Or I don't know. Person? I, I don't know. Like in the way, you know, you, you hear stories from like the early Internet where it's like, I'm almost thinking of it like a no local news broadcast. Like it's like a pen pal, but they talk every day <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, just being able to meet someone from like across the world who has like similar interests in you or something where it's like, like finding some long lost deep connection that someone who sees you for who you are and you know can empathize with you when you don't necessarily have that in everyday life where it is now it's almost completely accepted that if you have some sort of niche interest or um some sort of vantage or viewpoint that isn't the heterodox of society that you'll be able to find a community to um seek refuge in so I'm not exactly sure. Maybe I'll flesh that out at more someday. Sure. Yeah. I think that that's a, a good direction to go. Also. Yeah, man, watch that TFW, no GF documentary before Wednesday. I think you'd get a lot out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody yeah. else too. Yeah. Yeah. For all of you watch some movies. I like movies. Talk to me about movies. That's what I do. Hey, Joe. Oh, oh, hey, Evan. Hey, what do you want to talk about today? Oh, I'm going to get pretty close to coronavirus. We're going to skirt. No, 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 no. We're going to skirt the edge of it. We're going to we're going to draw circles around it. And then we're going to we're going to grind our skateboard across it. Um, Sweet. Yeah, it's going to be like a Tony Hawk move, but you got to keep balance because, you know, get too far to one direction and then all of a sudden whoops all coronavirus um <laughs> oops all berries yep so i i want to talk about debt and deficits and more importantly inflation and modern monetary theory which we have discussed before on this program, but it has started to come up again because of economic measures that are be taken in light of coronavirus. So there, there has started to be some uh, economists or economic thinkers or maybe just straight up pundits who are starting to decry the... Uh, or ring the bell that inflation may be on its way, that inflation due to the stimulus provided by the government is just around the corner, that it may be happening. And this happened a lot during the Great Recession and its recovery, 
But what we learned from that is that it didn't happen. Inflation didn't happen. And why why is it important that we care about inflation? So if you've taken an economics class, you've probably learned about the dangers of inflation. So you talk about countries that had failed monetary policy, such as um, Zimbabwe or notably uh, the Weimar Republic of Germany uh, in the uh, interwar years between World War I and World War II, where these countries just experienced what was called hyperinflation, where every day their money is losing value and nobody can buy anything because every day your money is just worth less and less and less. So it's hard enough, hard to earn enough money and makes commerce real difficult to do. And it's just really bad for an economy in general. Most recent examples of this are Venezuela that have um, experienced hyperinflation. So inflation can be bad. That That is true. It is worthwhile to be scared about inflation. But in the recovery from the Great Recession, inflation never took hold. Notably, even as um, there's a economic principle or theory that as unemployment goes down, inflation goes up and vice versa. Because the theory of the case is that when unemployment goes down, that means labor prices go up. And when labor prices go up, that means prices go up, which causes inflation. Inflation is just a rise in price levels for common goods. But there are two different ways that inflation can happen. Um, The one that I just described. And then there's also the just print money version of it um, that can cause inflation because there's too much money out there. But anyway, so it does not appear that in the last recession, after the last recession, that any inflation took place that was notable. The Fed didn't even hit its targets of 2% inflation, uh, oftentimes sticking between about 1% and 1.5% inflation. And I don't think that there's any chance of inflation really happening, at least as the stimulus or whatever you want to call it for this recession has been coming about because we're not at full employment. So prices aren't going to rise because of knock on effects of higher wages. There is a chance that prices could rise because of lack of supply and ability to deliver supply. Um, but even then, hopefully that would only be short term and prices would go back down because of, uh, the world becoming immune or vaccine or better treatment for coronavirus. But then thirdly, you know, there, the fear comes from the kind of idea of just dumping money into the economy from the government that, Injecting a whole lot of money into the economy will inherently cause inflation because if there's a greater supply of money, then prices will go up. Like as a thought exercise, 
if all of a sudden the government gave every person a million dollars, all of a sudden a million dollars isn't worth all that much because people will try to go and spend it. But if they try to spend a million dollars worth in today's money, then nothing would be left. So people will inherently raise prices to better capitalize on that. So yeah, essentially what happens is that there are only so many things that people can buy. So if there becomes more dollars able to buy the same amount of things, it doesn't mean that everyone can still buy whatever they want and things will just run out. To combat that, prices have to go up. Inflation will occur. Right. So In then, the thought experiment. Yeah. So then you run into... Like, so if you gave everybody a million dollars, that would happen. But what if you gave everybody $1,200? And at least for right now, it doesn't appear that that will be the case because, because everyone's getting the $1,200, but it's not a massive boost to everybody's incomes. Like, it's not changing the kind of supply of money as much as a million dollars would. I mean, it's a however many a thousand times difference but anyway giving people twelve hundred dollars at least in this run of things is if anything supplementing the income for a whole lot of people not adding on top of what they already have and they're going to be fighting over scarce resources in like luxuries or you know even regular consumer goods they're just going to be using that money to buy the base level of products that they need to survive, like a base amount of food, rent, utilities, whatever. So I don't really believe that through these normalizing of incomes or, um, you know, these, these smaller uh, stimulus payments that any discernible inflation is going to come from it but then again but then we turn to modern monetary theory which is uh, as explained before on this program the kind of idea is that if you have a sovereign nation that has its own currency that you know you print your own money that you can't default on that debt ever which means saying you can't pay it anymore you can't default on it because you can always print more money. Now, will it be worth the same amount when it was loaned to you? No, but you can always print more money. So you only ever choose to default on your loans. Secondly, is that with that condition in mind, and if interest rates are low and you can keep manage the, uh, you know, the amount of uh, your budget that you spend on paying off that interest, that as long as you keep inflation in check, you can basically spend however much you want. And it seems I'm I'm still skeptical, even though I have read it and I mostly seem to agree with it because it's going into waters that nobody knows quite yet. And it seems like the United States would at least be a country that's very uniquely able to embark on this endeavor because the United States dollar is accepted worldwide 
it is valuable. There are whole countries that their whole economies basically run on U.S. dollars. And our treasury bonds are rated triple A, which is as high as they can go. And they are seen as a zero risk asset um, that will always repay them with the interest. And and the world wants these bonds because of complex arrangements of, you know, doing trade with the United States and needing dollars. So they buy bonds and, you know, sell them back to the treasury and to get U.S. dollars. And, you know, it's a circle of helping money circulate in the world because the U.S. dollar is so ubiquitous and everybody wants to trade with us. So there is no fear quite yet of uh, the U.S. dollar just becoming flatly worthless in the eyes of the world and we can take on more debt now is a question of what do we do with that so it seems like there are some like even people who propose this kind of really question whether you know you would run your uh regular operations of government with this like would you fund a yeah there's some question of whether you could fund like a national healthcare service through just debt or whether you would actually want to collect tax on that. But one way that it can really be seen as perfectly fine is through investment. So investment in infrastructure and in new program, or I mean programs that aren't just services that can help boost the economy because why it's getting a whole lot of recognition now is because one of the tenets of people who or one of the common goals of people who push modern monetary theory is this idea of full employment where all the resources of an economy are being used efficiently in order to create better economic outcomes for everyone and in a time when we have when we're seeing mass unemployment whether it will be temporary or long term, the goal would be able to, the goal would be to take on a whole lot of debt to create employment opportunities for people in order to reach full employment, which creates better knock on economic growth effects, which betters people's lives. And one of the key proposals of modern monetary theory people is the idea of a jobs guarantee, which I am kind of back and forth on as an idea, but it is an idea that a government would have a, you know, the kind of safety net of a job instead of just a straight like payment to people. So, and, and I don't even know how to work this in, but just one thing I was thinking about modern monetary theory is that one way that it would have to work is that like you would have to spend money in a way or you it would give you license to spend money in a way from a government perspective that money doesn't matter but then you would also have to treat it still like it was a scarce resource like if you're acquiring stuff and just paying paying like through the roof for stuff that causes inflation <laughs> just inherently by raising prices but so like a weird dynamic is you would have to still like use market rates, but you can buy as much as you want at a market rate. So I don't know. That was just a, a side thought. But 
it's interesting to think of what we like because I want to work. I I tried to work on this problem of like it feels like the government can just make a whole lot of things happen, even if you know uh, we live in scarcity. They can there's an ability to make more happen than it, what is already happening. So I wonder if mon modern monetary theory is a bridge to that. But anyway, what are your thoughts, Evan? Yeah, I've got a couple of uh, responses. Number one, I just want to, this is more of an observation. I'm anti-jobs guarantee. I, you guys know that I have read David Graeber and take that to heart, that I don't think that forcing people into employment for employment's sake is really valuable. I think that if the government creates meaningful jobs and infrastructure or something else like that, it's it's one thing, but to give, make it a guarantee that you will have employment, whether or not that will be economically or socially useful, uh, it seems to me like we can do better than that. Um, but as, in regards to modern monetary theory, this is definitely more in Joe's wheelhouse than mine. And I, I just have a, a couple of, of things that I'm interested to see how Joe responds to, because I was talking to this with another friend who actually is another U of I economics graduate. <laughs> and he told me that modern monetary theory is referred to as economic flat earth theory because it is so outside of the realm of the possible. Specifically, there are concerns, number one, that the ability to keep inflation in check and keep interest rates low at the same time is not possible. And then there's also the fear that over time, by embracing MMT as policy, we will compromise the US dollar's status as the supreme world currency. Those are sort of uh, critiques that I've heard from my friend, and also I've, I've done some outside reading on this. And I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just interested to see how you respond to those criticisms. Well, those are the those are the concerns of it. It is still just kind of a theoretical framework. Um, part of it has been brought on by the economic trends that we saw over the last 10 years of even though debts went up and deficits went up around the world that we didn't see inflationary effects, at least in the United States, but then also like the Eurozone hasn't seen a great deal of inflation either. So there is a curiosity of whether now, this is... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, um, because it seems to me like what's been unique in the last 10 years is that we were hit with the Great Recession, and now again we're being hit with a major economic downturn. And increase in aggregate demand and inflation aren't things that we worry about during economic recovery. So have we reached a point within that time frame where we could call things normal or not? I'm genuinely interested from an economic perspective. I mean, I think that... Um... I think a good number of economists were calling the um, kind of the last few years before this, uh, before the coronavirus, that we were, you know, this was like a full fledged, uh, full near full employment economy. 
Um, even though, you know, uh, unemployment rates weren't zero, um, you know, most economists believe that anywhere between like, I don't know, two and 4%, depending on the economy can be seen as near enough full employment because there's always going to be some level of unemployment that is created by people changing jobs or looking for work. Um, yeah, that that's called, uh, for, for the listeners, that's called frictional unemployment, People aren't unemployed because they lost their job and they can't find work, but they're just in between circumstances. And that's that's fine. An economy can handle a like Joe said, two to four percent. My most common thing that I've heard is three percent. So that puts it right smack dab in that range. But that level of unemployment is essentially unavoidable and it's basically full employment if you're that low. Yeah. So there is. But but so we're getting into some. Uh, questions of whether you know if we've somehow gotten really good at like fighting uh you know inflation but then again this is like we're not quite sure and this is why not everybody is just on the on board with the whole like let's take on mountains and mountains of debt idea because (laughs) if it turns out you're wrong oh boy that's a big burden Mm -hmm. um but um, the questions of whether it'll cause inflation is is a tough one. I mean, so interest rates would rate would have to rise if inflation started, which would make the debt cost a whole lot more, which would create a panic because most of a government's income would have to be then used to pay all that off that debt. But then, I mean, there's also the question of like the Federal Reserve is kind of, you know, as being the lender of last resort, they're able to take they're able to like buy up U.S. debt through quantitative easing. And in some ways, they're kind of able to keep their book secret. So it just kind of is like it, it's kind of like shadow debt. But I, you know, I'm using terms badly here, but or loosely. So it, the crux of it really is if you can keep inflation under control and have as expansionary um, fiscal and monetary policy as possible. I mean, the only way the dollar would really be threatened as the world economic money unit would be if we let rampant inflation happen because then our paying off of our debts would be worthless because that's not a good investment. Um, you, you know, you normally, when you take on an investment, you want to have a return on it, but if the money, because you would borrow, yeah, you'd borrow at a certain level. And then when you were repaid, that original amount would be worth much less relatively speaking. Yeah. In a high so, inflation context. So if you take, you know, if you spend euros to buy, U.S. Treasury bonds and you buy a hundred euro worth of Treasury bonds and then five years later that hundred euro of Treasury bonds is now worth 50 euro of Treasury bonds. That's not a that's not a good investment from an international view or any view really. So it's it's a complicated matter but you know I, I keep have this feeling that there 
you know, whether it's borrowing against the future, because I mean, in, in terms of governments, the future horizon can be like as far as you want it to be. But in some ways, it seems like we're able to like some way we're able to coax more economic activity that better society out than what happened without government intervention and taking on debt. So why, you know, I feel like there should be some framework where governments can kind of maximally use their, you know, resources to help better things along without like overstepping their bounds and just taking over the whole economy. But, you know, that framework just hasn't quite happened yet and modern monetary theory is like the closest we have because it almost seems like i don't know at least in the western economies it seems like um i mean this is not to put down the struggles of people but it almost seems like there's a post-scarcity um dimension to economics at this time and and that's not true there is still scarcity but just not in the ways that we used to have it. Like this is like one of the main um, digs on like the United States is like, Oh, we have plenty of food to feed everybody. It's just not getting to everybody. Um, We're not allocating all the resources to everybody who needs it. So we're not, you know, living under fear that our country isn't producing enough food. It's producing enough food. It's just not getting there. And we have the capacity to, make even more food but how do we get it to do that so these are these are the questions yeah yes they are yeah so today on adequately informed we want to discuss a film (gasps) that is titled (gasps) mr smith goes to Washington! Kmart. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> Why would anyone go to Kmart? Um, but no, seriously, folks. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It is a classic film of American cinema, and its most notable aspect is its climactic scene in which Mr. Smith, the uh, titular man played by all-American hero Jimmy Stewart, filibusters his own removal from the senate and in doing so speaks to the ideals of america and so we're going to talk about the film discuss it as a movie and then also broaden this into a discussion of the pivotal aspect of the film the filibuster and uh, as a little spoiler alert we're going to try to talk about the dysfunction that this has actually caused in modern american government so Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Joe, had you seen this film before? No, I had not. But I had known of it for its kind of mythological American-ness. Like, it's a movie that people reference all the time when they talk about kind of the American political system. So Yes, and it, it is interesting. I've seen this movie before, um, and to be honest, I, like it's fine, but it's not... One of my favorite of the the classics. I've seen a lot of classics, and there's a lot that I that hold up better for me than Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But very rich for discussion today. And 
Joe's absolutely right that it's it's kind of remembered for the Jimmy Stewart character for his idealism and his rah-rah Americanism. But at the time, the director Frank Capra was accused of being un-American and communist because Mr. Smith's patriotism stands in contrast to the corruption of the senators around him, specifically one played by Claude Rains from the same state, although they never specify which state that is. And nowadays we kind of take uh, political wheelings and dealings and government corruption for granted, but in 1939 when the movie was released, he got a lot of flack for what was perceived as a dangerous criticism of American government. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. The American political system has had great mythologies about it. Like even like less than 50 years into the creation of the United States, um, the kind of myth of, or, you know, story or folklore about how American government works is, has always been there. That there are these lofty goals of extremely noble men who go and argue just on the facts and on principle and not in self-interest and ideology when we've known that really isn't the case. Mm-hmm. And hell, I wouldn't even like... I didn't do much uh, research on the you know conditions that surrounded, and I would have never guessed you know what you just said, Evan, about it. Mm-hmm. So, so to recap the plot for those who aren't familiar or those who need a refresher, a prominent senator dies, and when it comes time for the governor of his state to name a successor, he is caught between sort of the political machine, which is run by his wealthy donor who wants him to pick a stooge. And then there is a more popular group, uh, popular, more populist group of voters in his constituency who are pushing for a reformer and someone who will definitely not help them carry out their nefarious political machinations. And, as a compromise, he selects Jefferson Smith, who is the titular Mr. Smith, played by Jimmy Stewart. And it is a really good performance. I don't want to detract from that. I love Jimmy Stewart. I love him as an actor, even if his image has sort of been co-opted and even at the time was used in sort of uh, jingoistic propaganda. But anyway, Jefferson Smith is a local scout leader with no political experience, but the governor's children have really taken a shine to him for his work through his uh, scout leading, essentially. They don't call them the Boy Scouts, but it's a a Boy Scout type. Boy Rangers. Boy Rangers, yeah, there you go. Um, And so they figure that Smith won't be able to figure out how to work the Washington system, and he won't be able to stop any of their plans. Their plans are to get federal money to build a dam and the owner of the land that that dam is built on will be the man who is sort of their behind-the-scenes political backer. So the man who controls the strings will get stand to benefit personally from it, and the dam, you know, who knows if it'll actually help the citizenry. But when Smith goes to Washington, he 
acts like a rube, he's totally a fish out of water, he gets some negative press, and he's embarrassed on the Senate floor. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was their depiction of the Senate reminded me a lot of what we think of as British Parliament, like the members just dunking on each other, like trying to get the most laughs from a really snide comment, and it just seemed very performative, which I thought was interesting. Because Yeah, I think back in not, the day, yeah. that, that was closer to the truth of what happened. Yeah. Um, or, you know, who knows? Maybe it could be an entirely a film <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, uh, gimmick. So that uh, that's... I don't know. That's one thing that has gotten me on the train that the way the media portrays things matter because probably Mr. Smith goes to Washington is the best portrayal of... Or, you know, the most exposure I'm going to get to about how government worked in the 1930s. Um Oh yeah. So it matters if there, you know, some you know small stuff was right because that's how I I'm gonna see it. Mm-hmm. Film is many things, and one aspect of film is that it serves as a historical document. You know, not every film survives, but those that do become extremely valuable in shaping our perception of the era which birthed them. And that's why, just to get into film nerd stuff, that's why I am really interested in canon and which films are selected for preservation and which films enter into that hallowed classic status because they can have so much power. But that's a sidebar. And to return to the point at hand, Mr. Smith decides that he doesn't want to be embarrassed anymore. And so... He feels like to be a real senator, he's going to try to craft a bill. And his idea is to make a national boys camp so that boys, boy rangers from all across the country can come to this camp in the summer, have good experiences, basically like a Boy Scout jamboree or whatever that uh, big gathering is referred to as. But there's a snag. The land that Smith wants to use for his boys camp is already supposed to be used for the dam project, which will enrich the wealthy donor. They try to lean on him and take advantage of his naivete by getting him to back off of his bill to construct a boys camp. But he takes a stand and he says, I'm not going to roll over on this. You guys are acting corruptly and not with the ideals. That's one of the things about Jefferson Smith is that he's they describe him as a guy who quotes Lincoln and Washington in his daily life. He's very idealistic and so idealistic and wide eyed that at some points I had to stop the movie and like cringe a little bit like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, this guy's basically a child. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> very fair reaction. So Smith doesn't back down. And in order to stop him from foiling their grafting bill that will enrich their donor by building the dam on his land, they concoct a story. They were able to get a huge amount of falsified evidence to say that it's Smith that owns the land that they're trying to build on, and he's actually the one trying to enrich himself by building the boys' camp. Part of his plan is that he won't take any government money to build the boys' camp. He will have the rangers from all over the country send in just a nickel or a dime there, which I guess in 1939 could add up to a major public works project. Yeah. So he's accused of 
setting up an embezzlement scheme for himself by ripping off the children of America. And of course, the political machine has newspapers on the take and in their pockets so they can really quickly manufacture this media narrative to legitimize their claims against Smith. And so it all comes to a head when they're in the Senate and they're about to vote on expelling Smith from the Senate for corruption when he is recognized and then he can begin his filibuster process, whereby as long as he doesn't stop talking or sit down, he can continuously talk and postpone the vote on his own expulsion and he can use that platform to expose the truth about what's really going on with the damn bill and he gives his long impassioned speech talking about the ideals of american government and he professes his innocence over and over again he stands for um, how long do you know how long he it's it's implied it's basically 24 hours yeah, like overnight, but not, I don't, I don't think he, you know, yeah, I was thinking, you know, like 18 hours or so. Um, and eventually he collapses from exhaustion, but his speech has persuaded Claude Rains, the other senator from his state, to reaffirm his own belief in American democracy and honest politics. And so he confesses to his own scheme and asks to be expelled from the Senate instead of Smith, essentially exonerating him. So the pivotal moment of this movie has our hero taking advantage of the filibuster to clear his name and reassert the values of democracy. So this painted a really rosy picture of what the filibuster is and what the filibuster can do for the American people. Yeah. Yeah, it it really did. Um, But before we get into like real uh, filibuster conversations, just like on some film notes, like, boy, I got to say the first five minutes of the film were so fucking fast. (laughs) and it's just funny it's just interesting watching this movie and to think about how it would be made today like i feel like there would they would spend a whole lot less time like trying to convince us that corruption is happening and it would just be like implied Mm -hmm. but then also like um what was it how much uh what was it? Just like the speed of things got me sometimes. Like when they're doing the committee hearing on, you know, Mr. Smith and his corruption or his alleged corruption, just how fast they tick through that scene. It was just like, oh, here's a guy. Here's another guy. Here's another guy who's testifying against him. Here are three three uh, signature experts who look at the paperwork and the, the handwriting. And then, oh, uh, yep. And uh, here we go. Whereas in like, it feels like what would be modern cinema, that would, that would be like the prolonged battle. Forget even the filibuster. Like, yeah, courtroom dramas were not quite as influential at that time. Um, It's worth noting, though, that this is not a Joe's right. There are some scenes that go really quickly, but it's not a short film. It runs 125 minutes. Yeah. But yeah, it opens with the the death of the senator whose spot Smith eventually fills. And so then there's all of that hustling and bustling 
of ping-ponging back and forth between the political machine and the constituency and the governor going home to talk to his kids about Jefferson Smith, and that all happens. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Giving lots of space for the filibuster at the end. <laughs> um, I feel like that takes like 20 to 25 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It so what, a, what other comments did you have on the, um, the film part of the film? Let me see. I have here could not be wider eyed. That's uh, that's about the Mr. Smith character. Just. Uh, oh, uh, I really like the scene when he's talking to the uh, senator's daughter for the very first time. And yeah. The the camera's just focused on his hat and how he keeps dropping it and twiddling at it yeah. in his fingers and all that stuff. I thought that was like fun cinematography. Oh yeah, it's very funny and 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 well done. There's a subplot whereby uh, Mr. Smith is sort of smitten with Claude Rains's daughter, and then it sort of forms a love triangle with the staffer who's played by gene arthur her name is what do they call her they call her by uh, her last name saunders saunders yes um and so they eventually will end up together but yeah the first scene where he meets the senator's daughter he is just an absolute mess and ends up doing like this this actually pretty funny pratfall whereas he's leaving he trips over the the end table and knocks over a lamp and it's a good slapstick moment then it's also just funny the idea of a a senator like falling over backwards to like fix a lamp that he accidentally broke like like any other one would just be like oh i'm sorry get get someone to fix this or some shit like that (laughs) um but then also let me see oh was it uh was it just in jimmy stewart's contract that at some point in all of his movies, he had to have a scene where he was being serenaded in Auld Lang Syne because probably because that happened in the only other uh, Jimmy Stewart movie I've seen, which is uh, it's, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful life. life. And then it also happened in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So just that uh, is a fun quirk to notice. And I love It's a Wonderful Life. It's actually a top 25 all time personal favorite of mine. But you got to check out some more Jimmy Stewart movies. He's got some good ones. I'm still trying to just any movies. Yeah. Not a whole lot of movies I watch. <laughs> I, I It's hard when I just keep watching Making a Murderer over and over again. <laughs> um, that is that's a very Joe sentence. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to say I was. I can see why this movie lives on in the hearts of people because um, during his filibuster when like word gets out that they need to change the media narrative and that, you know, they call up the boys club to print their boys newsletter about what's going on. And all these, you know, young, young boys are rising to the challenge and they're trying to, you know, stir up, uh, you know, the right news of what the good Mr. Smith is doing. I, I was like, I, I shed a tear for how beautiful and caught up I was in that. Like, oh my gosh, this is the American spirit. We're rising up to the challenge. We're doing it. It has a very, very sincere idealistic quality. It's almost like the West Wing in that way, where that that was one of the things that people said about the West Wing is they're like, Man, how are all of these 
longtime political operatives still so uncynical about the workings of government. And Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is very much that same way. And it's touching. It is. Oh, yeah. You want to believe in the greater, grander notions of our national story and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, at least for our modern understandings of politics, is a harken back to a what we believe is a simpler, purer time. Mm-hmm. Definitely pre-death of the master narrative times. Yeah. I don't know. What did you just reference? <laughs> oh, the death of the master narrative? Yeah. It's something that's talked about in media criticism circles where we used to have sort of all of these different works contributing to one unified theory about what makes us American or even what makes us human. But over the past, gosh, I don't know, probably 40 to you know 30 years, maybe longer, as more and more perspectives have become embraced within storytelling, within literature and cinema, we're realizing that there is no one unifying narrative to describe our collective experience. And that realization is called the death of the master narrative. Okay. Well, I'm glad I didn't just brush that off. Uh, something I didn't know. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It is uh, because that definitely felt like uh, one of the products of modernism was that there could be a single narrative and then, mm-hmm. like, once we move into the, quote, postmodern, which whatever that means these days, but for this is very clearly just after the modern era, that mm-hmm. there are many, many, many perspectives of what can happen. Absolutely. So do you have any more thoughts on the, the film proper? Um, I think that was about it. I take I re- it you liked it. You yeah, give it, I liked it, a it. Thumbs up. I, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely liked it. Um, it you know, it, seeing it for what it is as a, a movie about American ideals from a time of the past. Yeah, it's a fun one. I mean, it has its uh, um, well, we're going to talk about with the filibuster here, but um, <laughs> um, you know, watching that movie, you'll definitely be and you know take it at its word you'll you'll be a pro filibuster (laughs) yes because the implicit assumption is that the filibuster is a tool for the righteous to use to halt the wheels of injustice and i don't see any problems there do you joe none at all all right Um, good night everyone how great night. Um, yeah, that's uh, like that's one way we like to mythologize about the filibuster is that, you know, that that's like the best case scenario where, you know, the the government and all the senators are um, implicit in something evil going on. And then one courageous man comes and stands up and says, no, we're not going to do that because I'm pure of heart and I'm using this uh, ability of mine to stand up and halt everyone at their at their whatever. 
And and I will fight with every last ounce of my physical strength, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's not even like it, it's not like an outsmarting. It's just like I'm good. It's an ability to just brute force a a standstill that halts something from happening. So I guess before we really get into that, maybe a brief history of the filibuster is in order. It is. Um, so, the filibuster. Uh, one of the biggest parts of American governance that we recognize as canon that was totally an accident. Was not part of the framers' intentions whatsoever. It came about um, when uh, Vice President Aaron Burr, after his duel with Alexander Hamilton, came and gave one grand last grand speech to the Senate and proposed that the uh, Senate should be a great deliberative body and that we should be able to have debate for as long as necessary to tackle the subjects and be the most informed and well debated and all that blah, 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 which is important, even though I'm blowing it away. So what they did was they got rid of a Senate rule, which was, um, the previous question rule, which was a way that um, they could shut down debate in uh, the Senate. You know, they could use their parliamentary rules to stop people from talking and just take a vote on things and, you know, keep things moving. Well, they removed that rule and unwittingly caused the filibuster to be a possibility. And it went for years and years without anyone ever actually realizing it until about the 1830s, 1840s, when they realized that there was no cap on talking. So if you just go on and talk for as long as you can, you can stop the Senate business and make it so that they can't take a vote on things if they're not willing to wait it out. So it used to be that there was no way to stop a filibuster. It could be any one person wanting to stop the whole damn thing, and it didn't matter how many senator senators were wanting to take a vote. If one person wanted to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, they could do that. This changed with the first round of filibuster reform that happened in 1917, I believe, under the Woodrow Wilson uh, administration, where Woodrow Wilson wanted to authorize the arming of American merchant ships in response to uh, the German U-boats sinking their ships. And there were 12 anti-war senators who didn't want to authorize that because of their anti-war stance. And they felt so passionately about that, that they were willing to halt the entire Senate in order to make sure that they didn't go about arming these ships. Well, Woodrow Wilson being the uh, parliamentarian that he was devised a rule that you could end a filibuster by something called cloture, which would end the debate and that that would take 66 votes or two thirds vote to get that done. 
um, at the time they didn't have Alaska or uh, Hawaii, so they didn't have that many senators. But that went over time. Then somewhere in the 70s, they, uh, they also introduced this idea of budget reconciliation that takes you know certain budgetary issues down to only needing 51 votes and nobody can filibuster. Um, but just one last point on what a filibuster cloture is, is that in the Senate, it doesn't require 60 votes or two-thirds votes or whatever to pass something. It only takes a simple majority, so 51 votes or 50 votes and the vice president. But it takes 60 votes, or in previous areas, eras, two-thirds vote to stop the debate. So in an area era of polarization and increased party competition, the parties have just kind of decided that they're going to filibuster anything that the other side proposes kind of no matter what. And if they don't have the votes to shut down the filibuster, then nothing gets done. They can't even get to the point where they can take a vote on something that only takes a simple majority to pass. So. Another point that's important about the modern filibuster, and maybe you were building to this anyway, but I, I was on, I was ahead. done on my tyrant. So oh, okay. I'm glad you pecked up. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, another important part about the filibuster is that back in the days of Mr. Smith goes to Washington, it did require that sort of Herculean physical endurance, but the modern filibuster doesn't require the continuous talking. They've streamlined it to the point where if you know you have enough votes to sustain a filibuster, they'll just kill off the bill and move on. They don't waste their time with it anymore. But in the rare instances where filibusters do occur, that's the time when it's supposed to be a big speech. Jefferson Smith exposes the political corruption but that's not really what happens. People just kind of say and read whatever in order to keep speaking. One of the most famous examples of this going horribly wrong and not living up to the idea of the Senate as the greatest deliberative body in the world is when during a recent filibuster, Ted Cruz just read Green Eggs and Ham. So there's really not a an argumentative use. There's not any intrinsic positives within the filibuster. It's just a way to stonewall a vote, even if that vote would otherwise pass. Yeah. Um, it's in Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It kind of shows the best case scenario of what a filibuster could be is a self-righteous, a uh, man who is believing in what he believes in and fighting for the greater good, standing uh, up to corruption and getting it to stop. And boy, how different the movie would have been if uh, Senator Payne hadn't decided to like recant <laughs> his, uh, you know, his bad doing, the forging of the documents. What if he had pulled a Mitch McConnell and just decided... Eh, he fainted at the end. I guess I won. Um, but <laughs> One of the things that I like to think about is what if it was 
Payne, the Claude Rains senator, what if it was Payne who was running the filibuster? What if they were trying to remove the actually corrupt senator and then he just filibustered his way out of it? That's the alternate side and what we're finding the more likely thing to happen is that we, you know, we want it to be this process by which it just takes one person to stand up for what's right. But what it has been in practice is a process by which it only takes a minority of senators to stop what is right from happening. Well, and also inherently, it's a better tool for people who are more conservative than people who are more liberal or progressive or what have you. Because oftentimes the goal of conservatism or conservative politicians is to stop things from happening. And what is the ultimate tool to stop things from happening? The filibuster. So no matter how good or righteous or whatever, the filibuster gives a tool to stop anything from happening, just as long as you just don't like it. And if you can convince the rest of your caucus to go along with it, as long as you have at least 41 senators on your side, you can effectively block anything. Like, yeah. And in the past, you know, and now, like, we, the history of the filibuster was given, but now how it, the history of how it was used. So for most of human or for human history, <laughs> yeah, most of human history, it hasn't happened either. But um, for most of American history, the filibuster was hardly used. So during the uh, 19th century and most of the 20th century, it was little used. But one of the main uses that it was for was Dixiecrats of the South using the filibuster to put an end to uh, mostly anti-lynching legislation, but any ge- civil rights bills in general is how the filibuster was used. It wasn't used as a blanket partisan instrument, mostly because parties worked with each other across things, but that's that's also a different story. But it just was a tool to stop any sort of racial progress from happening. The longest filibuster on record in Senate history was by Strom Thurmond. Um, I believe it was in 1957 when he was filibustering a civil rights bill and he filibustered for over 24 hours and that is that is a stain on american history that this thing that we believe is an ability for people to stand up for what is good is the the you know, clearest example of it being used is someone using it to halt good, to keep a system of apartheid. And it just, it's, it's not great. But then we move into the modern era where we've decided, you know, everyone's kind of playing constitutional hardball with each other. And it's like, Hey, wait a minute. I, if we don't like what they're doing, 
why should we just sit around and let them do it when we have enough people to stop them from doing it? And what's stopping anyone from stopping anything on the Senate? Not much. Um, just the guardrails of norms, which, as we're learning, are increasingly stripped away. Yeah. So, and the, uh, what was it? The founders, even in their um, original text, which, you know, were skeptical sometimes of originalism, but in this sort of case, there is some guidance because this is something that was directly talked about um, in the convention, you know, how the Senate and Congress would operate. And they believed in the principle of just having a simple majority for things. Like they even discussed having to have super majorities for, to pass legislation, but that didn't pass uh, the constitutional test. So they just made it. So it was simple majorities. But in this era of highly polarized partisan constitutional hardball, it just means that neither party can get anything done unless they have 60 votes. And that has effectively grinded our democracy to a halt. Um, so I have a question. Yeah. What What is the end game for a filibuster? What happens when a filibuster is over? <sighs> so... In, in kind of the modern incantation, the idea is that if it, the whole block was along with it, that each senator would keep on, you know, when one senator would end, then another would pick up and that they would just keep going on with it. But the, from what I can understand and maybe I'm wrong, but like just the full on talking filibuster just in some ways seems like more of an inconvenience than anything. Like it just delays things or like if the senators are just so like unenthused that they just leave once it starts happening. I mean, it's having real consequences, but in some ways it's difficult to see, you know, what the real consequences are. Um, sure. But especially now where we're in this system where we just understand that a filibuster could go forever. So the senator sort of just pocket whatever bill was being filibustered. Yeah. And and I think I like I said before, I think the implication now is that. Like there have been some proposals to if someone threatens to filibuster that they actually have to go through and do it. But then that would just lead to the minority group who's trying to filibuster taking the Senate floor and talking across different people for as long as possible grinding the Senate to a halt and not letting up until leadership says, okay, we're not going to vote on it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's leverage more than anything. I, you know, there is a, if it was always just one rogue Senator, then you could wait it out. But when in, there's a coalition, yeah, yeah. then it you can, can't, they can just keep, replacing each other as filibustering people. So. Oh yeah. You, yeah, you can, 
especially with, you know, the parliamentary rules, you can speak indefinitely, but then you can also choose who you yield your time to. So mm-hmm. then it's not the scenario where, you know, it depends on the Senate president to choose who they're calling upon. You could say, you know, Evan and I could theoretically filibuster for as long as we want, just passing the torch back and forth between each other. Um, so it just, I, I don't think it's good. <laughs> now we, now we get into this part. I don't think yeah. the filibuster is good or dem- democratic at all. And although Joe's absolutely correct that the filibuster is something we think of as benefiting conservative groups, and that's absolutely true, it is not a consensus among the Democratic wing or the liberal wing, whatever you want to refer to it as, that the filibuster needs to be abolished. Notably, Bernie Sanders has expressed extreme ambivalence about abolishing the filibuster and joe biden is an active supporter of retaining the filibuster along the lines of well we don't know if our side's gonna need it someday but i very strongly agree with joe not joe biden joe hicks that (laughs) the filibuster is causes much more harm than good and is wholly undemocratic yeah So, like, oftentimes the kind of liberal or democratic view of why the filibuster is good is in the case of, like, a Republicans trying to put limitations on abortion or to um, repeal Obamacare, which, interestingly enough, when they even tried to do a shitty version through bucket or budget reconciliation, they weren't even able to get the 51 votes that they needed. So um, that was kind of bunk. And who knows, even if who knows if they were actually able to repeal it, if they actually would. Um, So there's a real uh, because in the era of the increased use of the filibuster, we have gotten to the point where since you need a supermajority to do anything, that neither like both parties, when they come into power and they have less than the um, votes necessary to enact cloture for everything, then they are essentially dead in the water. <laughs> There's not a whole lot that can be done. Even if a majority of the country votes these people in, they don't have the full democratic legitimacy to do things or or don't have the full powers under their democratic legitimacy to do things because of this rule. Um, And it just makes it so that like only once you know, in a, in a, you know, every two decades or something like that, then a government can actually do any governing. We're much more fearful of what people will do. Like it feels like inaction right now is worse than action. But like for me, but people are very fearful of action 
so that they believe that this case that we have now of inaction is preferable. It comes down to the question of whether you believe that a democratically elected government has the right to govern. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, we're in this mindset where the modern filibuster says, if I'm not in the driver's seat, no one can do anything. Even if they're in the majority, even if they have 59 votes, if I can't control it, if I can't dictate what's going on, it's going nowhere. And that's ridiculous. When we have, when we establish a government and a representative democracy, we have to make sure that the people who are elected can actually govern and implement their agendas that they were elected to implement, whether or not those people agree with you. I think it's something that Joe has said before. If you're afraid that the other party is going to enact a bunch of terrible legislation that's going to hurt anyone, sure, that's going to be bad in the short term. But if we break the gridlock and let them get through those shitty bills, people can finally realize which form of governance actually leads to the best positive impacts in their life. Right now, each side has the ability to say, well, you know, guys, we're trying and we're still right. We're not testing if we're right because the other guys are blocking all our bills. And even and, I'll, I'll add credibly can claim that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but if we have any faith in the system of government that we've set up and it's far from perfect and there are very valid critiques of democracy but there is no legitimate way in my eyes that the proper function of the senate is to make sure that nothing happens patently ridiculous to me yeah now there is oftentimes a what gets towed around the kind of founders belief in project protecting the minority, but this wasn't in the constitution. This wasn't thought of by the founding fathers. This, this creates minority rule instead of uh, minority protections. And in American government, there are already so many ways to stop something from happening. You could stop it from becoming a bill in the written text. You can stop it in committee. You can stop it in a second committee. You can stop it when it's in conference between the two houses. You can stop it um, from getting onto the floor. And it just seems ridiculous that we add the extra step that If it gets through all of those hurdles and is something that the majority wants to vote on, that it could get to the floor and just be dead as well, like not even get to the point where you could have a vote on it. It is just patently ridiculous. Like to go that far within the, you know, the process for it to just 
not happen, even though most of the people of that deliberating body, the Senate, want it to pass, would vote for it. Like, like for other things in government, like impeachment or amendments or, you know, things that are much bigger changes. I can understand why wanting to have a super majority, you know, it makes sense because it's something that's much bigger, requires more consensus. But just the regular governing of the government or of, you know, the, the United States government, it just it should be done by a majority. And for most of American history, it was because the norms were in place that a filibuster was only reserved for rising up to a big occasion. It wasn't the norm like the. Uh, the original bill that um, created either Medicaid or Medicare, the Speaker of the House was able to ensure uh, to Lyndon B. Johnson that he was confident that there wasn't going to be a filibuster and that it was going to pass with 54 votes. Something as consequential and big as either Medicaid or Medicare, you know, both big, but that they would pass without the opposition filibustering and get less than votes needed for cloture is just seems wild today. That wouldn't happen. That doesn't happen. But it is seen that in this increased polarized era, you have to do everything that you can to ensure your agenda gets done. And oftentimes ensuring your agenda gets done is stopping the other side from doing what they want to do. And I just see it as like, this is the clearest example of the federal government not being able to do what it can, what it needs to do. And hell, even getting to the point where a single party has the majority in the presidentship, the, the house and the Senate like where all three of those are of the same party, that's a feat of its own that takes um, elections across different years that requires democratic legitimacy over multiple elections to obtain yet is stopped dead in the water because the Senate needs 60 votes to pass anything practically. Because, Because the Senate accidentally repealed a rule and created this crazy nowhere else in the world loophole. And, uh, uh, you know, in uh, some readings about the filibuster learned that the house used to have this rule and you know what? They got rid of it. (laughs) Like the Senate chooses to have the filibuster. And at this point, because we have the filibuster, you know, Theoretically, it could take just a simple majority to repeal it, but that would surely be filibustered. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So at this point, there would need to be a group of 60 senators to get together and decide that they don't want the filibuster anymore. But then uh, perversely, 
I'm pretty sure that if either party got 60 senators, they would decide, oh, we did it. <laughs> we got we got our golden ticket. We're there. We don't need, we don't to, need to get rid of the, the filibuster because we can just do cloture. Yeah. Yeah. We can do it now. We can do what we want. And it just seemed uh, it's it's scary at the prospect of it not happening. And this to me, at least personally, this feels like the the real issue of governments being able to do things when majorities are elected to it. <laughs> Like that is a constitutional issue if that can't happen. So I believe that this is something that really needs to be organized around that. We need to work on changing public opinion. I hope I changed your opinion to not wanting it listener, but um, it's it, it is grinding our government to a halt, you know, People have a huge distrust of the federal government, and I I can't help but think that most of the decline of the last 10 years is that the federal government just can't rise to the challenge because it can't do things like regardless of what, you know, how you want society organized and what kind of programs you want. We haven't changed much other like the last one was Obamacare. And that only happened because we screeched in with 60 votes. Just barely. <laughs> so I I definitely bold take. I believe simple majorities should be able to pass things even in the Senate. Because right now the lofty goals of having a lot of debate and being able to, you know, thoroughly discuss the issues and be the more noble um, anti-cyclic or counter-cyclical institution isn't showing to be the case. It's just showing that it's a tool of partisanship to block the other side from doing what it wants. The concept of democratic legitimacy rises from the idea that in a democracy most people would agree with the way that things are being run. Now, we're a long way from achieving that. We still have to get rid of things like gerrymandering and voter suppression and the problems brought about by Citizens United and a whole host of other threats to our democracy. But when we are able to elect individuals to lead, when we have majoritarian consent in a body of government, they need to be able to enact their will. Otherwise, what is the point to voting for a senator? If they can't do anything, no matter who is there, what I mean, becomes the point? I mean, hell, I wonder if this is what, I mean, the, I wonder if this is what has led to a, decreased feeling or decreased warmth towards democracy and a turn towards more authoritarianism. But I will also counter that that trend has happened across most Western democracies and it's not exclusive to the United States, but it has been more intense in the United States. So I think if we elect a government and, and this you know, 
I I vote for Democrats and most of their causes and liberal causes. I believe that this should be afforded for a Republican government that gets elected as well. Not because I like their ideas, but I believe in democratic legitimacy. And like Evan said before, I have a belief that their programs and ideas aren't that great and they wouldn't be too popular if they actually enacted them. Um, it sucks to lose elections, but if your only solution to that is to derail the concept of national governance, then you're never going to be able to enact laws that improve people's lives, which should be the function of government itself. It just feel like our government is has essentially been in a stasis from the form that was created for it in 2010. Like the 2010 charter of the United States government is the last one that we have. All the institutions, all the, you know, the ways that we go about things, everything has been just kind of every year re-upped because nobody can really change anything otherwise. And is the government of 2010 ready to handle the challenges of the world of 2020? I don't think so. It was hardly able to rise to the challenge of 2010. (laughs) Very true. Sadly, very true. So, um, please, um, yeah, don't support the filibuster. (laughs) Yeah, listen to what elected officials say about the filibuster, especially those who are running for Senate. It is the prerequisite for talking about any other legislative challenge that we face in our democracy. Yeah, it, it, it to me, it's almost like, what's the point of discussing anything else if you're not willing to really interface with getting rid of the filibuster? Mm-hmm. Um, because to me, it just means that you want to have ideas, but not actually get it done. Um. Like, you know, that's that's why I supported a number of the candidates that I did in the primary. Um, I hope that we can maybe sway things with Joe Biden, but that's doubtful because he's a, he uh, he has a very positive vision of the Senate being a senator for like 40 some years. So probably not going to be about that. Um, Bernie Sanders, you mentioned earlier, had an interesting take on uh, the filibuster was that he wasn't going to get rid of it, but he was going to have essential like budget budget reconciliation lets you do things with only 51 votes when it pertains to the budget, but not any other programs or anything changes tacked onto it. But who decides what those things that are outside of, budget reconciliation are determined by the Senate parliamentarian and Bernie Sanders pitch was basically that he was going to direct his vice president who runs the Senate to essentially ignore (laughs) the Senate parliamentarian when they said that that any bill that he was trying to pass was outside of budget reconciliation, which 
maybe in a short term is a way to get things done, but it doesn't have like we if we're going to have rules, we got to follow them. So maybe in the short term, it would really get things done. But then you, it runs into a bit of a constitutional crisis because then then do we just ignore the Senate parliamentarian on everything? Um, well, it's a bold strategy, Cotton, to say the least. At, at best, it's a Band-Aid that you hope the adhesive is going to hold to. But yeah, it's not not as good as saying I will just support the outright end of the filibuster. And and who knows he if he you know if you would be able to get a whole Democratic caucus in in on that um that workaround. So I I am of the belief that we need to abolish the filibuster or hell even could do a, a compromise. Just make it so that it takes um uh fifty one votes. To break a filibuster, effectively getting rid of the the uh, vice president Super majority requirement. Yeah, like yeah. like all it takes is fifty one votes to pass anything. But if you only have fifty and you're trying to get the vice president in on things, nope, shut it down. But yeah. All right, now who's ready for my galaxy brain take of uh, you know abolish the Senate? Who's ready to hear that? Oh, um, I'm somewhat there, but um, good because I'm like saying it jokingly, but really the Senate is kind of inherently undemocratic, and we could do better for. Well, well second you house. see, the thing is, is that the the Senate is inherently undemocratic, and I, but making it a democratic institution makes it even like. Like, I feel like it would have more legitimacy if it was actually representatives from the state nominated by the state, because Uh even then we could claim some Republican values. But since it's just elected by the people, it's like, wait, what are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Um, But that that'll be for another day. That's a bigger discussion, I think. Yeah. Or at least some proportionality. But anyway, yes. Do we got an end segment? Uh, did you watch that Rick and Morty? I did. All right, then we got an end segment. All righty. So Rick and Morty came back. It did with the, as I described it, the most meta episode of any show spoilers, I think I've ever seen. Spoilers big. Yeah, and we're spoilers. really, we're really flying close to the sun because when Rick and Morty was last on, we did our episodes at the end of the week. Or recorded them at the end of the week, and this just happened, and we're releasing on Tuesday. So, if you haven't watched it, turn off the episode now. Okay, so everyone still with us either saw it or doesn't care about spoilers. Um, Joe, how how would you go about describing the events that unfold in this episode? It almost feels like a, a like jokes for writers. Like the way everything is meta sliced up using writing terminology, even in it. It's almost like jokes based on the system and not jokes itself. Yeah. Meta jokes. Yeah. Meta jokes. Um, 
Rick and Morty has always been unafraid of going meta and breaking the fourth wall, but this episode takes it to a whole new level. Because as you learn by the end of the episode, the entire episode has not been following the original C-137 Rick and Morty, but rather conjurations of a Rick and a Morty riding what is known as a story train, which the Rick in the episode refers to as a literal and metaphorical plot device, which takes them through a number of different plot points that are all potential ways that the episode could unfold. But ultimately, there's not much of a plot at all beyond the quest for a plot on this story train, which kind of, as they venture through it, is a little bit reminiscent of Snowpiercer. But this was their way to get an anthology segment out without doing an interdimensional cable episode again, which bums me out because I love the interdimensional cable episodes. Those are both two of the funniest episodes of Rick and Morty in my estimation. Well, at some point, what was it? The story boss was like, we're breaking the fifth wall. Yeah, that's their end goal is to go beyond the fifth wall, whatever the fuck that means. You want to talk about our modernist, postmodernist, postpostmodernist era? I think that's the best representation of it, going beyond the fifth wall. The fourth wall's been broken so much, we got to do more. We got to take it even further. Like, if I were. Honestly, they kind of do. Like, if I. Like, at least the way it seemed with that machine that he was, like, dialing up, I guess, you know, the conceptualization of the fourth wall is acknowledging that it is a film or TV project. And then. The fifth wall is like the acknowledgement of like market trends and like the uh, the way that stories sell. Yeah. Like the marketability of a TV production. So, yeah, you go go from you go beyond acknowledging your existence in the story to having the characters actively and knowingly participate in the construction of their story. Maybe that's it. Maybe like, that's what it is. Like understanding your appeal as a production. <laughs> <laughs> because like on the machine it had like money generating broad broad audience and mm-hmm. So the fifth wall is what a TV executive is. their job i really liked this episode i thought that the first half of season four was a little shaky but this was very funny very very meta there was a lot of community references they talked specifically about dan Harmon's story circle which i thought was hilarious and then the post-credits scene is almost beat for beat very similar to the way that the season six of community ends with a sort of meta product advertisement so it was it was nice for me as a fan of community to to catch those references yeah yeah so anyway i think yeah funny uh, episode see where it goes and very very meta very meta well anyway i think that brings us to the end of the episode evan do you have any uh, final words no all right Well, anyway, we would like to thank you all for listening. We'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. And uh, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.